tonight to have the lights a little bit lower um, because it feels a little bit more intimate, um, a little bit more like we're in some beautiful forest monastery, perhaps, in another part of the world. And we get to see the changing of the twilight. So I'm back today with the bell that I had taken. The bell has never left Spirit Rock before, so it was kind of a special thing to take it to this memorial service today. And funerals, memorial services, are really so mysterious. I mean, our life seems so full and complete, and we have our activities and our plans and our friends and our possessions and our sense of ourself. And then one day it's not there. And it's almost really inconceivable, this mystery. It's called the great matter. And in some way we're here to address or look into the great matter, birth and death. And there we were out in this kind of grassy lawn of this cemetery. doing a service and going to bar- bury these ashes. And Esther's, Esther was my brother's wife, Esther's beloved dog went right up next to where the hole was dug and just lay down there where the, where the box of ashes was. And we rang the bell 108 times as if to talk to her so she could hear us. Her children rang the bell. And then this whole, I don't know, 50 or... Sixty geese came flying right overhead after that, and making their wonderful honking sounds like a little flyby, you know. <laughs> okay, we're leaving the earth and something else is happening. And as we deepen on retreat, one of the things that begins to happen for us is a shift of identity. How we talked last night about how we get lost in these thought structures, ideas, plans, papanja, all the proliferations. And yet there's an open door. There's a door that's open. Or it's possible to drop from the thought structure identification into the experience of the present. And this shift of identity is one of the mysterious and deep purposes of insight meditation. The Buddha was gathered with his disciples in Jetta's Grove Monastery. And in the forest, like here, he picked up some twigs and leaves and grass and said, my friends, monks, nuns, whoever was there, are these you? Would you take these to be yourself? And they said, not really, sir. And he said, just so, as he often said when he got the right answer. He said, in the same way, your thoughts, except he didn't use the word your, he said thoughts, the thought process, the feelings, the perceptions, 
the sense experiences of the body. And even consciousness itself is not to be grasped as I or mine. It is what it is. It plays, but it's not possessed by anyone. It's not yours. So Ajahn Chah, my teacher in the forests of Thailand, spent some years, a number of years, wandering in the forests and meditating under various masters and in caves and under the trees and doing all the kind of ascetic practices that one could do a generation ago in Thailand when there were still great forests that now mostly have been cut down. And then he went to see the greatest meditation master of the forest tradition of this last century, who became his teacher, a man named Ajahn Man. And he paid his respects and spent not many days with him. And Ajahn Man asked Ajahn Chah about all his practice, and he described the experiences and the concentration and the light and the visions and the you know, overcoming of things and the purification and all of that. And then Ajahn Man said, yes, those are good, but those are just the states. He said, they're merely appearances. Through not having a deep understanding, you take them to be the point of practice, to be real, to be the nature of the mind itself. There's a distinction between the essence of mind and these transient states. They are all transient states. And as soon as he said that, things became clear. Suppose there arises happiness or sorrow present in mind and body. It's one thing on a different level from the true nature of mind. When you see this, you can stop. You can put things down. When conventional, conditioned realities are seen for what they are, then what remains shining is the ultimate truth. Most people mix it all together, lumping it in the mind, but actually they're all the states of experience together with the one who knows. If you understand this point, there's not much more to do. So here you are sitting like the Buddha under your tree of enlightenment, as we all are. When we sit, we sit as the Buddha in this human form, halfway between heaven and earth. And the invitation, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. And to remember who we really are, Ajahn Chah used this phrase, the one who knows, the knowing in us. Trudy spoke about it last week from the Tibetan tradition. In the language of Thailand, in the Thai language, the one who knows is Puru. Pu means being or person, and Ru means knowing, the one who knows. But it's a little bit of a play on words because Pu is also used as a, the beginning of the word for the Buddha. So it's really the Buddha's knowing within us. Now in the Theravada tradition, and in fact in a lot of the Buddhist world, there's a kind of emphasis at times on overcoming suffering, getting rid of things, defilements and kilesas and purifying ourselves and concentrating and releasing the, the things that we get caught in and not clinging to self and not clinging to experience and trying to kind of get to something and so forth and get somehow to a place of freedom. 
But we really don't sit in the most fundamental way for self-improvement any more than, you know, jogging and going to the gym and going to therapy and dyeing your hair and Botox and all the things you do to, you know, change your wardrobe or whatever. I mean, it's not the point. And there's some kind of inner thing that's really the same. I know some of you have been kind of trying to do that because we all do. It's so natural. It's like built into our culture. Let's make a better personality, you know, as if you could or fix ourselves in some way. And part of the problem with the starting out with getting rid of things and cleansing and cleaning the defilements and getting, you know, purifying and all of that is that it plays into this sense that that's who we are. Curiously, says the Jungian analyst Robert Johnson, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find out that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you're a bum. <laughs> so the one who knows, the Buddha within, is that understanding that we have always had, that knows about life. Now the one who knows, you could call it Buddha nature, whatever language you'd like. Ajahn Chah called it the original mind may be contrasted with the one who forgets. And uh, Alan Watts wrote a book on the taboo against knowing who you really are. The one who forgets is the one who goes to sleep. Now sleep is a, talk about mystery and death is a mystery. Sleep is a mystery. It's so amazing. I mean, here we go through our day, and then we leap into bed, more or less, and go, please, could I have some unconsciousness for like eight hours? I'd be so happy, you know? It is, it's an amazing thing that we do this, and not just us bears who sleep for the whole winter, right, hibernate, that, that it should be woven into life that we have periods of let's, let's erase this all and go into some other, isn't every day, it's extraordinary. It's wondrous, and it's valued. You know, in some monasteries, they call it the poor man's nirvana, right? (laughs) So you come here, and first there's the sleep of the exhausted yogi, whether it's, you know, a month ago or, you know, a week ago or whatever you got here. And it's like, please, take some rest. Your body says, remember me. It's like the sleep that new parents dream of. Oh, finally, I'm on retreat, you know. But there's a second kind of sleep, the waking sleep. The Hindus say that the baby in the womb sings a song, do not let me forget who I really am. And then a little while later, as they get born, they go, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. Because it's so entrancing, this world of form. The second sleep is the waking spell of being half asleep. And there are benefits from it. I mean, sleep lets us let go, and even not paying attention, there's a kind of relief, forgiving, forgetting. And sometimes we need it. So, a poem from, I think it's Emily Dickinson. There is a pain so utter, it covers substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across 
as if in a swoon. What an amazing poem, this deep pain, so utter. It covers substance, reality up, covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across as if in a swoon. And sometimes on retreats we get to places where it's too much, or it feels like it's too much, not really too much, but it feels like it, and it has to be honored at that time. Sometimes we just need to take a rest, take a walk, say, all right, let me find some space to deal with this rather than being lost and caught in it. But the problem is it can so easily go into denial. Our good friend, teacher Larry Rosenberg in Cambridge, wonderful teacher, and you know, also uh, there, now he's in his 70s, but somebody who's been a great Hatha yogi and a very vigorous person and a incredibly careful with his diet and lived this amazingly healthy life. Um, and he was on the subway a few years ago, in mid-60s, I guess, five years ago or something like that in Boston. And Boston's full of universities and lots of young people take the subway and so forth, the MTA. And he said he was standing there and the car was getting, he got on and the car was pretty full. And then the car started and after it started, he said, this young woman sitting kind of near him got up and he thought she was getting up to get off at the next stop. And then he said, all of a sudden, there was this amazing realization. My God, she was getting up so I could have a seat. And he said, here, I, he said, I'm the person that gives my seat to old people, right? I am not a person who takes a seat. <laughs> and he said it was just a kind of shock in his mind to realize how he looked at 65 or 66 to these people. Do you understand? <laughs> Denial, right? Uh, you have as much chance to win the lottery as you do them sending it to you by accident. <laughs> Another form of denial, right? Sleep. Every, rock, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold, and not clothed. This world in armaments is not spending money alone, trillions of dollars. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is General Dwight David Eisenhower. So here we are, the biggest weapons exporter ever on the face of the earth, sending weapons everywhere, and then we wonder why we don't feel safe. What's amazing, I mean, sleep, denial is, is amazing. I mean, the, the culture and the world in parts is made of forgetfulness. It's constructed of it. So it's not, I'm not just up here dissing it or something. It's to get curious about it. It's really amazing. Even religion collaborates. Joseph Campbell said, most religion is inoculation against the mystery, so you don't really have to face it. And so we're playing hide-and-seek with ourselves. There's a part of us that really knows, and then there's the pretense. And then we come on a retreat. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out. 
because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So you come on retreat and you sit down and who should appear? And we've talked about this a lot in the interviews I've been doing, but I mean, here's the Buddha seated right here on the night of his enlightenment, right? Guess who appears? Mara. And it's fantastic. Mara is so good that it doesn't matter. India, Marin, wherever you happen to be, you sit down, close your eyes, get a little bit quiet for a moment. You know, I'm going to awaken. And then Mara appears. Mara, which is delusion, forgetfulness in all forms. Have you noticed? Fantastic. Like that. And Mara appears as our desires, which we talked about. Oh, if only I could be this or have that or become that. Mara appears as our thoughts, how he talked about, all these fantasies. Mara appears as the judge, all those streams of judgments. Thank you, Mara. Mara appears as anger and aversion. Mara appears as this deep unworthiness. I'm not worthy. Mara appears as fear and deep grief. Too much suffering, I can't face it. Mara appears as our loneliness. Oh, I have to distract myself from this loneliness, it's too much. Mara appears as our doubt. I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. It's really weird in here. I don't know. What do they know what they're doing? I mean, all those kinds of doubts. It's fantastic. And actually, we scare ourselves. I mean, you're sitting here. You're not doing anything. You're in a nice place in Marin, just minding your own business. And then you scare yourself. (laughs) And the thing about fear, which will come, It will come because of the clinging we have. And the fear comes because we have to let go of our unworthiness or our anger or judgment. We don't have to let, we just see it. Oh, that's you, Mara, and not be so afraid of it. Fear comes because we have this limited sense of ourself. And then we are about to grow. I think fear is like one of those little lights on the dashboard that goes on that says, about to grow, about to grow. (laughs) Because it takes you beyond who you think you are in big ways and in very subtle ways. So we sit here and say, all right, I'm going to remember who I am. And Mara says, no way, honey. You know, <laughs> I am going to distract you. I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to give you anger and aggression. You know, you can get in. I'm going to give you stories. I'm going to do the unworthiness thing. You're not enough. You'll never be the Buddha. I mean, Mara comes with all this. And then if you get really good, things start to dissolve. You see the unreality of Mara. Then there comes peace and calm and luminosity and rapture and joy and the equanimity and concentration, all the states of the factors of enlightenment that the Anna talked about. And these are called the subtle kilesas, the vipassanupikilesas. These also can become Mara, these very beautiful things that are supposed to happen because they come and you say, oh, now I've got it. Now I'm peaceful, now I'm joyful, now I have great space, now it's luminous, I've got it. And the minute that little I've got it comes in, you know who's got you, right? 
So when you come into interviews, it's really like the Buddha touching the earth. You come in, and we say to you, you know, what's happening? Which is really to say, show me, tell me. You know, and you say, oh, the thoughts, the fear, the love, the beauty, you know, the longing, the unworthiness. And a lot of it's too difficult at certain moments. So I don't know how to do this. What do I do? You know, anger is so big, loneliness so deep. And I really get interested. I have developed um, a friendship with Mara, as you have too, you know, in your own way. So I get interested. You say, anger. I say, oh, how big is it? How much? Let's, let's hear about it. Let's see it. Close your eyes. How big is this? Oh, is it big as your body, the room, the sky, you know, the earth? Oh, nuclear. All right. <laughs> there it is. Let's see it. Oh, fear. How big is the fear? In a sense, it's saying, okay, Mara, show me your dance. And there's one, two, three, maybe six, eight Maras that each of you have as sort of your personal kind of attendance. And when you say, all right, show me how big fear is. Fear of death, okay, let me see fear of death. Let me feel that. Fear of living. Some of you, fear of death ain't nothing compared to fear of living. It's true. Or dissolving, you know, or coming back, or whatever it happens to be. Okay, or unworthiness. Let's see the unworthiness. Let's see it to the very center. And in this, like the Buddha touching the earth, saying, the earth is my witness, to bear witness to my right to sit here and awaken, you sit and say, may I too be witnessed. The earth is my witness. I too may awaken. And there comes this beautiful trust that you can do this as the Buddha did. And what's really beautiful in sitting in interviews is that you come in with all these different things and we know that they're not who you are. You know it too, of course. The thoughts and feelings and joys and sorrows and all that stuff. That's kind of how he's phrased. It doesn't define you. This is just Mara. You know, Mara hangs out at Spirit Rock because people are trying to remember who they are. And so Mara comes in. In fact, you need Mara, it turns out. Otherwise, it doesn't work. We'll get to that. <laughs> so here you are, and we know, and actually you know too, it's sort of, we're in this little dialogue, that this isn't who you really are. And so there come deepening moments, periods of stillness, of happiness, of joy, of peace. They do come. And what we want to invite you to do is let them expand and grow. Let them become vast. You have happiness, close your eyes. Let the happiness be as big as it will. Fill your body, fill the room, fill the whole earth, sky. Peace comes, let, let the whole being of peace open as vast as it will. And so you learn how to begin to inhabit, to expand and open and make space, not just for the struggles, but for the natural beauty of consciousness as you let go and open. There is, there's the poem. Hmm. Within each one of us, there's a silence, a silence as vast as the universe. We are afraid of it and we long for it. 
When we experience this silence, we remember who we are, creatures of the stars, creatures of eternity. All that is created from the elements, created from time and space, arises from this great silence of your own true nature. And so we begin to trust the space of knowing that Ajahn Chah found, not all the changing experiences, but the knowing itself, resting in the space of awareness that is called the abode of the Buddhas. The one who knows understands this, the one who sees, the one who knows. And sometimes in interviews, I just want to switch places with you. You know, you're asking me questions and things like that. I mean, I even have at certain moments, but you know the answer. The heart knows, not the mind. You know, forget that tricky little, you know, waterfall. But the heart knows. It does. The one who knows. The one who knows is comfortable with uncertainty. To everything there is a season. And Ajahn Chah's favorite phrase was, my na, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? People would ask him all these kind of questions, should I do this or that, or what about this, or tell me about enlightenment. He'd smile and he'd say, my na, it's uncertain, isn't it? The wisdom of insecurity that relaxes in the reality of change. The one who knows is comfortable with uncertainty. Our life, we know we're going to die. That's the fact, right? The only thing that's a little bit unknown about it is when. So a Sufi came to this great palace of the Grand Sheikh, wandered out of the desert, kind of a Sufi yogi, came up to the guards and he says, hey, can I stay for a couple of nights in your motel? The guards got upset, went in and told the sultan, right, hey, there's this wandering yogi, you know, Sufi, who called this place a motel. You know, your huge palace. And I'm brought in with the guards, you know, and the sultan is insulted by this. He says, you better explain yourself, sir, or, you know, how it goes in those stories. And the Sufi just looked back at him and he said, tell me, who owned this place before you? Who was running this place? Well, my father, of course. You know, it's an ancient place, long lineage. And before, and what happened to him? Oh, he died. And before him, who ran this place? Oh, that was my grandfather, great sultan. Ah. What happened to him? Oh, he died. And before him, oh, my great-grandfather, vizier, whatever his name is, his whole Ali Khan, Baba, whatever. <laughs> Wonderful, long, beautiful name. And um, what happened to him? Oh, he died. And then the Sufi looked him in the eye and said, in this place where people lodge for a brief while and then move on, did you say it's not a motel? <laughs> so instead, the one who knows sees the preciousness of every single day. Because we don't know in this mystery. And I felt it so much today in this memorial. This is from Zen Master Isa, a little poem. Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew. Appears, it disappears. Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting.
this he penned on the death of his daughter. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. The one who knows rests in the preciousness of every day, the mystery of it. As someone said, the mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. The one who knows in us rests in the reality of the present. The abode of the Buddhas is the present. The point is not the future of humanity, it is the presence of eternity. Remember how when you were a little kid, two, three, four years old, how long it was between birthdays? Like a year was just an eon of time. Because you were there every moment, so alive as children are. And one of the beautiful things that happens on retreat is that time opens to us again. And you walk out there and take a walk Sometimes, like you're a two-year-old again on the grass, and you feel your step stepping on the earth, and smell the bay trees, and you know hear the turkeys doing their thing, and all of that. And, and you sit here, and you get to watch the phases of the moon. Do you see that little crescent moon? How extraordinary! Who gets to look at the phases of the moon in most of our busy lives? And in the spring, you get to see the baby deer. All these deer, and they're all going to have babies any day, pretty soon. Or you eat a meal, and they serve you a kiwi, and it's like, wow, Australia in your mouth, right? This whole amazing thing, or an apple. And you discover, as you come back to the one who knows, that you can trust the present, rest in it, the reality of the present. So that Aldous Huxley put it this way, He said, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of endless progress instead of dwelling in eternity. And there comes with this one who knows and lives in the reality of the present a kind of generosity. I mean, even it gets really, you know, you know how it is. Things just open. And things take so much longer. I mean, some sits, you you know, they go by and all these things happen. And sometimes the, the sit seems like it's going to last forever and the bell will never ring, right? That's a different kind of eternity. Oh, my heavens. But it's all there. You're alive for it. You're here. You're actually present. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green rhinoceros as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails, her battered cardboard book swung open on their soggy pages. And if you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes every simple object an offering. In the same way, this is Alison Luderman who writes, in the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy, 
the whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And the one who knows opens to this amazing present moment. The one who knows, who rests in the reality of the present, is also not dwelling in what's going to happen or what did happen, past or future, not even concerned with the present itself, which is another idea of time, but just being. The one who knows is not afraid of pleasure and pain. In us, we know this. They're woven into life, into duality. That's how life is fabricated. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, hot and cold, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, birth and death. This is the fabric of incarnation. Pleasure arises and we're not afraid of it, the one who knows. I mean, a lot of people are loyal to their suffering. It's amazing. Feel like you're, you know, you don't know who you'll be or you're going to desert your friends and family if you're happy. You know what I'm saying? The one who knows is not afraid of pleasure and not afraid of pain. They are the fabric of life. So a novel by Mary Gatskill, and she writes a, a story of Veronica, who's a social work intern in the worst, poorest part of Watts. And Veronica had seen a stray cat in the neighborhood known as Baldy and gotten the idea to feed it. She worried, though, what people she worked with around the community would think. At first I thought they were angry at me, the men, at the community center. They glared and they said, she wouldn't know what to do with that. She ain't never had anything that good in her life. I said, well, I'll just try. And I opened the can. And they stopped playing pool and they all watched when I put it down. And I tell you, the way that cat buried her head in that can, she'd thrust her head down, fingers splayed, her refined voice rolling and softly gobbling. She looked up at us, and if cats could cry, tears would have been streaming down her face. Nobody said a word. Then one of the men crouched down and held the can so the cat could get to it better. And every day after that, I brought in a can of food, and every day the men would gather to watch Baldy eat. It was probably one of the few times they got to see a righteous need completely satisfied. And it's so important that we not deny the beauty and the pleasure of life. And the one who knows is also not afraid of pain. You have each your measure of pain. It is granted to you in this life to deal with, and no one gets away without it. Go with the pain, says Anne Lindbergh. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It courses in waves like a tide, and you must be open as a vessel, lying on the beach, letting it fill you up, and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. With a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain, one reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain, as though the pain were not yours, but the body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar.
So the one who knows is comfortable with uncertainty. The one who knows rests in the present, in eternity, the reality of the present. Unafraid of joy and sorrow, gain and loss. Or I shouldn't even say unafraid, fear comes. Say, oh yeah, fear, Mara, I know you too. Unafraid of fear. How's that? Gain and loss. Emptiness comes. Oh, this is emptiness. Form. This is form. Unafraid of the way things are. In Zen they say, if you understand, things are just as they are. And if you don't understand, things are just as they are. (laughs) The one who knows in us looks at the world with eyes of compassion. And I walk back by our community altar there, and it's starting to look like Lourdes, right? All we need are a few crutches on the wall, right? (laughs) And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Birth and death and people we love and everything else on there. The one who knows sees the world with eyes of compassion. The one who knows doesn't blame the government, the fundamentalists, the capitalists, the Democrats, the Republicans. The one who knows doesn't blame their spouse or lover or partner or their childhood. This from Alan Wallace, Tibetan teacher. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. And as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you get ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can shout, you catch your breath and see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. And there he is, sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice and eggs, and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we see clearly, when we realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness, is ignorance, then we open the door of wisdom and compassion. So much ignorance, the ignorance that gives birth to greed and hatred and prejudice and fear and racism and conflict, so deep. It's ignorance, it's blindness. And the one who knows heart becomes tender at all the blindness in the world. There's a a great movie by the famous Japanese director Kurosawa, all those extraordinary films, um, called Redbeard. Redbeard's a film about this old Japanese healer, physician named Redbeard, and the young man, the young doctor that he's trying to train. And in part of the film, a young woman comes in who has been terribly abused and mistreated um, and now is emaciated and won't speak. Um, And uh, Redbeard prescribes some medicine and gives it to the young doctor-to-be, says, okay, you give her this medicine. And the minute he tries to give her the medicine, she slaps the spoon away and smashes it in his face. 
and he feels really bad and he runs back to the old doctor and says, I can't do it. How can I help her if she won't accept the medicine? So he goes to her bedside, Redbeard. She's kind of frail and pours out a spoonful of medicine to Otoyo. And with a moment, just she splashes it all over his face as she did with the young doctor. And Redbeard raises his eyebrows and calmly pours out another spoonful of medicine and offers it to her. And again, she slaps it rudely all over his face and clothes. With a look of resignation and perhaps a hint of amusement, he once again pours out another spoonful of medicine and politely offers it to her. And again, she slaps it defiantly back at him, but now there's some confusion and fear. And he patiently repeats this once more, and this time she hesitates, hitting the spoon almost reluctantly, just enough to spill the medicine, but not quite splash him. It's beginning to dawn on her that perhaps this man isn't really going to get angry, that unlike any other adult she's dealt with, he wants to help her and not just use her. And as this dawns, she opens her mouth as if in bewilderment, and Redbeard gently inserts the spoonful of medicine. And a little while later in the movie, she speaks, she's been silent all this time, and she says to the young Doctor, why didn't he hit me? The one who knows sees the blindness of the world with a deep compassion. And what's amazing, when Ajahn Jamnian, one of my teachers from Thailand who comes and visits Spirit Rock every year, was talking about Mara and the Buddha, he said, from the point of view of the knowing, Mara becomes holy. He used this amazing phrase that you don't usually hear um, that's used to talk about the Buddha or the great, you know, disciples and monks. He used the phrase, holy Mara. And I said, could you please explain holy Mara to me? And he said, when the one who knows, when we trust this knowing, when we rest in the knowing, we see that it's Mara who has opened our heart of compassion. It's Mara who has taught us about bondage and freedom. And so we could bow to Mara and thank him. He's definitely a him, by the way. We could bow to Mara and thank him, just so you know, for the teachings. And Mara becomes holy Mara, the source of awakening. There comes so much tenderness, and of course it's in the big things in the world that I just talked about, but even in the little ones, you know, your roommate, if you have one, the snuffling of the person near you, the way people serve themselves on the food line or walk up the stairs, and you get so sensitive. Now, sometimes it just goes in, you get so quiet, and a little sound, and it feels like it razor blades or something really deep goes in your body. Some of you notice that when you get really still, the but barriers go away a little and things go in. It's okay, it's perfectly safe. And you get used to it, and then there's other phases, but that comes. But with it, there comes a kind of generosity. My neighbor's musical instrument of choice is the door. <laughs> At first, I thought it slamming a major nuisance. And then I saw it was really part of a kind of percussion sonata and the aggravation dissolved, and now I observe how skillful this soloist is in his entrance and his exit. 
And there just comes, as we open, a sensitivity, but also this tender heart and a gratitude. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. Thank you, everyone, for teaching me the reality of the present. And last, the one who knows, understands the paradox of this world. Irony, complexity, metaphor, humanity. This is also called the deep realization of the middle way. Middle way of Nagarjuna, the middle way of the illuminated ones, the awakened ones. Form is not different from emptiness. We chanted part of the Heart Sutra at this funeral today because she had done Buddhist practice in the Zen monastery. Emptiness is not different than form. People would ask Ajahn Chah about no self. And sometimes he would say, it's not true. Very interesting. And then he'd look at you and he'd say, of course, self isn't true either. (laughs) Now what? Do you understand? Because those are just ideas to be grasped at self or no self that we place on this sacred mystery of incarnation. Self appears and disappears. We expand into space. We contract. The game isn't just to expand. Okay, now I'm open. Everything's really open. It's like holding your breath. Okay. After a while, you have to breathe. The heart, too, opens and closes. The mind opens and closes. Everything moves. When we rest in the reality of the present, it's not clinging. Oh, I don't want self. I only want no self. Ouch. (laughs) You know? It's laughter. It's release. It's letting go. It's not fixing or grasping. It's resting in the knowing, in the one who knows. Bailey Collins, who was our poet laureate, writes a poem called Dharma. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money or the keys to her doghouse, never fails to, fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. <laughs> Who provides a finer example of life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate, a single spoon, Gandhi with his staff and his holy diapers. (laughs) Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her brown coat and her modest blue collar, followed only by her wet nose, following only her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing, followed by the plume of her tail. If only she did not shove the cat aside every morning and eat all his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly detachment. (laughs) If only she were not so eager for the rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes, please. If only I were not her fallible God. (laughs) And the one who knows understands the paradox of humanity, the whole of our humanity, and remains knowing, open, compassionate, kind. It was a beautiful thing to do this funeral this morning because Esther, who was an artist and a landscape architect and mother and many, many things, 
was refreshingly unpretentious and unafraid, and so much herself. She was a great lover of people and of life, many, many, many friends. She was so much herself that everybody around her became more comfortable being themselves. And you could see it in what people wore. They didn't all wear black. They wore strange hats and blue jeans, and people felt like they could wear anything to her funeral. And it was really a testament to her being true to herself, saying, yes, you too be true to yourself. We sit, we walk, and there's this great wave of expansion and contraction, opening, closing, joy and sorrow, pain and stillness. And we open to it all and trust the space of knowing, the one who knows our own Buddha nature, the sky of mind. And we learn to rest in it. There's this beautiful word in the Buddhist tradition, Pali word, called vihara. Vihara, if you know the word Brahma vihara, the dwelling place of Brahmas, that's the four abodes of metta and karuna and mudita and upeka of the, your, you know, your dwelling places. You're in the divine abodes over there, sometimes, anyway. Um, but they're the dwelling places of the gods, loving kindness and compassion and so forth. But it's used in many other ways. Um, it said, the vihara of the Buddha is mindfulness. The Buddha lives or rests in mindfulness. All Buddhas. Or Buddhas rest in the eternal. There are all these words for it. Or the vihara of the awakened one is joy and calm and concentration and happiness and well-being, the things that Anna spoke about. Or we could speak of the vihara of wisdom, the one who knows. And later on in the retreat, we'll talk about the natural expression of this awakened heart, this one who knows in the suffering world, because it needs that too. But for now, we're really learning how to dwell in deep wisdom and compassion. It's what the world needs so much from human beings. Yes, we need to bring it out in so many ways, and that's true. But for now, O nobly born, Ajahn Chah says, there is an abode called no abode, a place where there's neither going forward, nor moving backward, nor standing still. And from this, all beautiful things arise. Not merit, nor good deeds, nor insight or concentration, or any state whatsoever is the purpose of this practice, says the Buddha, nor the absence of these things. But the sure heart's release, liberation, freedom of heart, returning to who you really are, this and this alone is the purpose of all the blessed and difficult work that we do together. And it's so wonderful to awaken in this way and such a gift to yourself and to the world. Let's sit for a moment.